Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a proud podcast person. And I'm particularly proud this fortnight because we are about to cover one of the greatest films of all time. It's been a while since I've said that. (laughs) But um, Dan, why don't you tell the precious arrowheads the plot of Sweet Smell of Success? Oh, you know how you all think Walter Witchell's a twat? (laughs) (laughs) yeah god (laughs) so basically uh sweet smell of success is a like a latter-day noir in all but content it's a blistering indictment of the peripheral elements of the entertainment industry it's a beautiful character study it's almost entirely populated by cunts and it's one of the best films ever made Yes, here, here, and and what is the plot of this uh, precious jewel? Well, I mean, the the thing is, the plot is actually very simple because it's essentially a character play, and I think that one of the things that that worked against it, and these people are idiots, by the way, um, is is that it's ostensibly a very well handled melodrama, but it's like at its very crux, it's incredibly simple. It's about the fetishization of power. It's about a young publicist who's elevated above his ability because of his association with a newspaper man a columnist who has a huge readership in the you know the old analog age um and he thought he was going to get ahead because of this relationship and he was called upon for an unpleasant favor uh, namely to uh, break up the uh, relationship between the newspaper man's younger sister and a jazz musician that the newspaper man doesn't approve of. Uh, and he has failed at this. And as a result, he's been cast out from the the cadre of this, uh, of this journalist. And so the film is ostensibly about him trying to worm his way back into the good graces uh, of this man and about the, like, the moral both inward and outward degradation that he's willing to subject himself and others to to try and uh, achieve this thing, to chase after the titular, you know, smell of success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, we could probably wrap up now, to be honest, but um, don't worry, I've (laughs) I've got quite a lot to say as well. You know, it is an unusual film, really, in terms of what it's focusing on. There aren't many films like it. It, It's a film noir about journalism um, with kind of the two symbiotic sides of journalism, the the, the PR and and the the columnists, the journalists themselves. Um, It's treated as toxic as a friendship between a couple of gangsters. Um, And it's a world I recognise, obviously, though not in this extreme. But there is a truth at the heart of it, uh, just as there's truth at the heart of all great art, which is part of what makes it so special, really. Um, And, yeah, I've always been impressed by that truth. So I wasn't actually surprised to find out in the extras, thanks to the magnificent Philip Kemp, that writer Ernest Lehman had been a press agent who'd worked for a similar columnist to Hunsecker. You've mentioned him already in, in your intro. Um, doing similar terrible things for him and 
he wrote a short story to expel the demons he'd accumulated before becoming a screenwriter and uh, adapting that short story into the first draft of uh, Sweet Smell, which was then rewritten by uh, the great Clifford Odets, who added all of the iconic similes, like the cookie full of arsenic line, um, <laughs> yes. and, and so many other quotable pieces of dialogue. It's kind of proto-Tarantino in a way, in that all of the dialogue sounds like it's basically one character, like everyone's as clever as, as the next person in this film, and they're, they're all kind of in love with language. Yeah. Um, yeah, the dialogue is described as gutter baroque, which is just fucking perfect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. And it's the sort of the beauty of the dialogue is matched by the, the production design, the cinematography, like everyone involved in this film is operating at their highest possible level, in my opinion. And yet, even, yeah. though, even though there are no kind of big dance numbers or moments where the action stops so one of the leads can sing a song, uh, Sweet Smell of Success feels like a musical to me. It's constantly moving, it's swerving, it's soaring, it's ducking, it's diving. And the dialogue has that lilting rhythm. Um, Sydney sometimes feels like he's dancing through the movie and other times he feels like he's conducting it. Um, you don't so much watch it as get swept up by it. It's a constant in my top 10 of all time. And it is a beautiful portrayal of absolute ugliness because, as you say, Dan, there are a lot of bad people in this film. Oh, it's, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Like, it was a massive flop when it came out. Uh, yes. And I think it's just that America wasn't ready to look into that particular mirror. It's a, it's a really brutal indictment of, like, vicious capitalism and the, the idea that you have to stand on the necks of others to achieve success yes. as you move forward. I was having a conversation with a creature designer friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about that kind of, like, that attitude in our industry, this, this sort of cutthroatness. Um, and, I, and I said that, uh, that capitalism rewards psychopaths but the the arts, uh, specifically creative capitalism, uh, rewards narcissistic psychopaths, and like this film is a perfect example of that. The idea that they have to consider themselves the center of the universe, the most important thing to be able to progress, uh, and whether it's the uh, that the beautiful elements of uh, of our main character, like only telling truth to people he considers below him because everyone yeah. above him has to be deceived for him to be able to worm his way through society, uh, all the way through to to some extent. How much spoilers are we doing? <laughs> um, I do you know what weirdly, you know, we had this conversation last time about yeah. people who haven't seen Terminator and Terminator Two. I would say that even less people have seen this. Yeah, I think we have to avoid film. it. We have to so, avoid it. Okay, yeah. so w without going into too much, there are there are there are moments in which someone in the film uh, is is yeah, it falls foul of their own ego to a to a quite a high level. Like a, yeah. a shift in the dynamic of the movie takes place because everyone in this film is is entirely uh, obsessed with their. Uh, the way they portray themselves. In fact, the only person who who isn't um, is uh, uh, who who isn't like just totally consumed with the way they portray themselves is Susan Harrison's character, who, yep. who plays the the younger sister. Judy. And and 
yeah judy thank you and she is uh yeah she's like this sort of like pure core at the center of the film um but everyone else to some extent even the even her her chap is uh you know there's a there's a certain degree of brouhaha there's a certain degree of like image preservation to uh to occur absolutely and yeah god there's there's so much and everything that you've just said that you know i want to discuss but yeah you're absolutely right i mean the, the sort of one of the sad things about you know show business or you know obviously this is a, a kind of not directly the film industry because it covers a, a whole load of different areas in a phalanx of different yeah. ex- exactly but you know just to speak about the film industry itself um it does seem to be uh an industry where you know people are in a symbiotic relationship between um you know you've got the the sensitive creatives and you've got the harder edged um like you say you know um potential psychopaths and in order to make it in the industry you have to navigate your way through that and one of the problems with the bad people in the industry is they'll often present themselves to you as your friend and we kind of join Sydney and JJ long past that point where both of them really kind of know what they're in the middle of. Um, it's one of the special things about the film in that we kind of join the plot quite late. Um, the sort of the dastardly scheme is kind of in the process and the audience kind of has to play catch up to a certain extent. But yeah, um, in terms of the relationship, Sydney knows what he's doing is wrong JJ doesn't give a fuck that what he's doing is wrong. And there's a chance that Sydney was a good person at one point, but that's all lost now. And, you know, maybe I'm projecting that onto him because he is our protagonist um, and you kind of want to like the protagonist, but he is a deeply awful person who makes bad decisions based on what he's being offered. Um, and I think there is that danger in this industry where, you know, you can make bad decisions based on, on what you're being offered um, and you can see the best in people and, and, and all sorts of things. I feel like I'm rambling here, Dan. Stop me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to interrupt you less, Sam. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I do feel that, you know, that's part of the truth that's at the heart of this film um, that seems to be based on hard hard one experience should we say yeah absolutely i like the 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 whole film is about lessons learned too late yeah essentially a hundred percent yeah and again like without talking too much about the third act you've got these this like small range of characters all of whom have these like beautifully and momentarily revealed pasts whether it's um uh like the i did something bad for you in the past and i uh, i don't want to bring it up again yeah <laughs> like that kind of stuff or the cop going like i just i just hit that kid too hard that's all yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you get these throwaway lines where you're like oh fuck these are bad people yeah exactly <laughs> and they've got they've got like they've got regret but it's self-serving regret like they've moved to a place where the only reason they regret doing these things is because of the negative impact that it's had on their lives. Yes. Rather than the wider sort of moral scheme of it. Yeah. And then you've got the two young kids who are like, they're like trying to be pure and moral, but it, it's so hard for them. 
in this world where like no one else is playing by their rules. This is it. And I've seen some criticism of those two young actors. You know, it, I think it's pretty hard to have a lot of presence when you're opposite, you know, Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. Yeah. But I think that they're, they're kind of perfectly cast because, you know, they don't have that sheen of toughness. They've got absolutely false toughness, if that makes sense. Um, you know, maybe Judy's a bit tougher because, you know, she is a, a Hunsecker. So um, she does have that kind of edge to her. But yeah, I mean, one of the things I find really interesting about the, the film itself is that McKendrick, uh, the director, got his start directing doing propaganda films during the war. And this could, Absolutely. This yeah, could the... be read as an anti-propaganda movie, kind of revealing the poison at the heart of show business and casting two actors who had only been wholesome leading men up until this point. And it tickles me that it was released on the 4th of July in the States, which is obviously an interesting date for a film that reveals that the Hollywood American dream is a nightmare being puppeted by monsters. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, should we talk a little bit about the direction? Yeah, I mean, I, well, so I think McKendrick is, like, so those of you who know, know, but he's one of these amazing names in Hollywood whose career was slightly cut short. And this film, to some extent, this was his uh, Peeping Tom. Like, it kind of fucked him. He yeah. did he did, a, he did a bunch of films afterwards, but he was always kind of, like, struggling to, like, regain his position because he was a, he was a, a, a wunderkind coming over from England. He'd been... Uh, in Ealing at the end of the Ealing studios. So he did like Lady Killers, Whiskey A Go-Go. Was it Whiskey A Go-Go? Yeah, Whiskey A Go-Go, Man in the White Suit, like sort of latter-day Ealing classics. Uh, And he was a a fantastic director. He went over to America uh, and signed up uh, over there for one of these indie studios um, to make some pictures. Sweet Smell of Success failed, like tragically failed. And for the rest of his career, he did... I mean, he didn't do a huge number of films... Uh, throughout his life and and he never quite managed to get like back to the level of industry respect that he deserved because he's like absolutely objectively a fantastic director but one of my favorite things about the way in which he directed Sweet Smell of Success is that apparently he was like quite early on he was tipped off that he wasn't going to be included in the editing process that he was going to be like locked out of how the film was going to be cut and he had some very strong opinions about this that the producers one of whom was Burt Lancaster you know about the way they were going to take the film and so he started to edit in camera and specifically the so he one of the instructions that he gave tony curtis was you know your character's constantly moving he he can't sit still and if he don't even sits down he's got to be constantly moving around because he's always like on the make he's always looking for opportunity his eyes have got to be darting he can't be passive ever but the camera kind of matches that yeah and i I always assumed that that was just part of like a representation of this world. And it wasn't until watching the extras on this disc (laughs) that I realized that he was deliberately staging these incredibly complex scenes that would be shot in a single camera movement to like, you know, these are your 23 moves. You've got to like hit all these different marks because we're going to be here, we're going to be here, we're going to tilt, we're going to lift, you know, whatever. Um, because he wanted to prevent the studio from being able to edit it in a way other than that which he had seen it. And it's because he... So he studied art, he moved into propaganda. (laughs) 
and then he and then he was a storyboard artist yeah um and and so obviously as a storyboard artist he was very very aware of how these things like worked and while he himself would say that he wasn't like wed to these things that he'd you know he'd he'd adapt as and when they got to set it allowed him to create an environment where he could force a, a version of the scene into edit so that adage that a that a, a film is made three times it's made once on the writer's desk it's made once on the set and it's made once in the editing room kind of became a fallacy with this movie because he forced the hand in edit with the way he was directing the movie but it leaves such a like a like such a stamp of his aesthetic choice and 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 his narrative choice on the vision uh that i yeah i just fucking love it totally yeah um and yeah uh, just a, a, a couple of things that i kind of picked up from this amazing disc like if you look at the list of extras like it's not tons and tons but what's here is so fucking good it, it kind of makes up for you know the fact that there's not loads and loads on here and yeah just to pick up on your point of, of him being an artist and him being a really great storyboard artist um he was also a failed actor you know he he, he tried to get into theater but just wasn't a very good actor and i find that very interesting because he was praised for his work with actors and but lancaster in particular liked working with him um and i think that it's kind of similar to Tarantino because however you feel about Tarantino, he is great. <laughs> he is great with actors. Um, you know, there's consistently great performances in, in his films and he's also a failed actor. Um, you know, maybe one day someone should tell him. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that kind of element, I, I think all of those aspects lead to or contribute to great direction because McKendrick is someone who is very much practical and he's about the craft of filmmaking. You know, all this auteur genius stuff is a myth, I think. I think that if you work hard and if you learn all different areas of filmmaking, you can work towards greatness. Um, And, yeah, he was obviously very, very sharply intelligent. I mean, it does take a director of experience to decide to do what you've just outlined Dan um to have the thought in the first place to think that far ahead in terms of um combating uh bad edits and stuff uh, from an outside source yeah to have Tony Curtis be constantly on the move which also matches his character um, of course you know perfectly and 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 the way the film shot matches you know that um I I think it's really really clever and and yeah, uh, what else was I going to say about what you just said? It, it, <laughs> I, I, I'm very inspired by you this time, Dan. Like you, you, you seem to have connected with this film, or, or you know, I don't know when the first time you saw it was, but you seem to have connected with it on the same level that I connect with it. And this is a film that is in my top ten. Uh, like I say, like it's one of the few constants in my top 10, which uh, yeah. is forever shifting. It's Tony Curtis's favourite of his films. It's one of Scorsese's favourite movies. Obviously, if you've seen Me Streets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's one of the first driver, to an extent. It's one of the first films to shoot on the New York streets as a location rather exactly. than as a studio rebuild. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so much to love about this movie. But I think I think the thing is that it's 
it's the favorite film of a lot of people who've tasted the film world. Right. Because yes, it, yes. It, it, it lays bare right. yeah. like the thing that we all hate about the film world. Yes. And yet none of us hate it enough to leave it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my like, God, Dan, are there's... we in a toxic relationship with the film world? <laughs> of course we are. The film world <laughs> is an abusive relationship. There's, yeah. there's, and oh my fucking God, the the way in which Lancaster talks to his sister is like a fucking like checklist of abuse. Yeah. Like the moment there's a bit where she finally, it's like middle, like just after the midpoint. So just after the middle of the second act, uh, they're in the theater and uh, her and her boyfriend have have gone to talk to Lancaster, and she there's the first time she has the like the the bravery to stand up to Lancaster, and she starts to say, "I I don't like how you behave," and he cuts her down with an insincere apology, yeah. like he shuts her up by saying, "I'm sorry" over what she's saying, and it's like it's like the most perfectly observed moment of like control. Yeah. It's so it's both it's both incredibly beautiful as a piece of writing and the ugliest thing in the world as a representation of human behavior. You've and just to ha- go on. Yeah. Those to, to have those two things like funnel into you like a fucking javelin yeah. watching this movie. It's yeah, it's just incredibly put together. Yeah, exactly. This is exactly it. And um, you've just kind of reminded me of the other point I wanted to pick up on um, from from what you were saying earlier. And and that's um, the story. And again, I'm going to be vague here because this is um, sort of nearish to the end. So I, I, I don't want to spoil the moment. But there's a scene in this film where there's a confrontation and um, McKendrick filmed it a certain way. The producers didn't feel like what he was doing was right. Um, And so he actually filmed certain scenes two different ways, one for himself, one for them. Um, And they screened the one that he'd done for them. And they decided, you know, it didn't work. They're going to need to do pickups the next week and, you know, get on the phone to the crew because we're going to have to reshoot this. Um, And he begged them, to watch his version before they did that. Um, and they kind of ignored him and then, you know, decided to watch it. And they realized that, yep, of course, this is, of course, this is the right way to approach <laughs> this scene. And they tried calling the crew to see if they could recall them. And because of union rules, presumably, they couldn't. And so they kind of wasted time and money because the film was finished by this point, um, doing like pickups and inserts and stuff. But yeah. The sweet smell of Schadenfreude. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, despite all of this, um, and. You know, it it was preserved by the Library of Congress in 93. It's part of the Criterion Collection. It's one of Roger Ebert's great movies. Uh, It's clearly a film with pedigree. However, McKendrick himself described it as his worst film. Um, uh, He said that it was an overblown melodrama and overwritten. Um, Artists are idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think it's kind of an important point to make because... um, you know, it's hard to see or hard to judge your own work 
Um, it's. I think it's, it's cap. Like, so I agree with you entirely. I think. I, I, well, that, the, the the other thing I'll say actually, just just before, of course, you go into that, is that not only is it hard to judge your own work, it's hard to separate the memories of making something from the thing you've made. And I think he had a really tough time making this film, partly because of the stories that, that we've already told, but also the script wasn't finished, um, and you know, production was held up. It ended up costing four times the the budget and all of this kind of stuff and and that can be traumatic so um but yeah what were you going to say dan i think it's the sign of a good artist that they hate their previous work right okay yeah (laughs) like if you ever talk to an artist and they go yeah that's perfect (laughs) then you know they're never going to do anything better than that oh yeah that's interesting yeah you can't move forwards if you're satisfied yeah. Satis- satisfaction is the fucking death knell of creativity. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. But... And, and, yeah. McKendrick, no matter what we think of his opinion, saw nothing but the flaws in this film. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's like if you decorate your own kitchen, Sam. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All you're going to see is the gaps in the ground. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that's, that's absolutely 100% true. And yeah, there's a uh, well. Let, let's let's talk a little bit about the extra because there is an amazing documentary made the for Scottish TV. Scottish, Scottish TV, yeah, yeah, really good. It's just under an hour. It's got contributions from Bert Lancaster. It's got John Milius. I was surprised when he popped up. <laughs> um, and McKendrick himself. It actually includes footage of McKendrick interacting with his students, um, which will be exciting for anyone who's read McKendrick's masterpiece of a book on filmmaking and introduction to the craft of the director. Again, this is a book that's fallen slightly under the radar, a bit like McKendrick himself, but it is as good as any book about the craft of filmmaking. It's very Absolutely. practical, um, partly because it's written by a director who became a teacher, which obviously McKendrick was when the book was put together. But it ranks alongside Sidney Lumet's Making Movies for me in terms of overall quality and usefulness. Yeah. And there's actually and an extract from the book in the booklet that comes with this disc, which is a, a representative sample of the overall work. And it does include some of those criticisms of the film, um, but it's also him using it as an example for his students um, about how to structure a narrative, which is obviously very interesting. Yeah, and, and actually the structure of uh, Sweet Smell of Success is the one thing that he always like referred to as positive. Positively. Yes. Because it is just so well put together, but yeah, he's he's a it's it's a it's a really good documentary, um, and it's got some lovely insight into his not not just this film but his whole career. It it charts everything from the early days, uh, like his pre Ealing his one pre Ealing film through his Ealing movies and all the way up to his his movement in Hollywood. But there is a like all the way through it. There's a shadow of the fact that he loves reviews where they like they don't really like his films, but they don't <laughs> like them for the reasons that he likes them. <laughs> so like, there's the... <laughs> Uh, there's that disc- there's that bit where he talks about uh, the boy who was 10 foot tall or the 10 foot tall boy whatever it's called uh-huh. uh, where they're like oh we didn't really care for the movie but the only good bit was the chemistry between the boy and the man 
And then he talks about the fact that Edward G. Robinson was sick for like a chunk of it. So they got like someone else to body double him for a huge part of it. And then by the time Robinson was well again, the kid was back at school. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, so McKendrick played the boy in reverses, like on his knees in a little blazer. And then they just like stitched it together in edit. So that chemistry was entirely fabricated by the director and the editor working together. (laughs) So, like, there's this sort of, like, yeah, fuck you attitude to, like, what he considers his successes, uh, which I really enjoy about the way he directs. That's it. Like, I mean, there's all sorts of clues, isn't there, throughout the documentary and and kind of the, the information that you glean from the commentary that sort of... It's understandable why he went into teaching to a certain extent because as great as he was, I just don't think... I think Sweet Smell of Success kind of puts it all out there. You know, it's kind of a rotten industry and um, there are elements to it, whether it's the critiques or whether it's the fact that the film he hates the most is the one that he's most well-known for. You know, I think there was a lot of sour elements uh to the industry for him but that doesn't stop him from being one of the best teachers <laughs> on how to direct it's kind of it is a strange it is a strange relationship well i i think also if you look at the stuff like man in the white suit which has a sort of political edge to it yeah and the lady killers and whiskey a go-go like the stuff he did over in england like they're great fucking films but there's not a huge depth to them no but then you know, if you go back to thinking about his work with the psychological warfare branch, like yeah. he is literally an artist, an American artist raised in Scotland who has uh, like trained in illustration and art, who has moved into filmmaking because of the war. Yeah. And is literally his whole job at that point is emotional manipulation. Is yes. about like taking hold of things you care about and turning them in a way that affects you. And so, like, Sweet Smell of Success, like, its detractors call it melodrama. I, as one of its... What's the opposite of a detractor? A retractor? (laughs) (laughs) A protractor? A protractor. Um, I, as one of its... (laughs) As a champion of Sweet Smell of Success, say that, yes, it has all of those elements of melodrama, but the melodrama and this, the difference is the, like, the, like, the level of, like, grace like how deftly he manipulates how like incredibly like like graceful he is with the way in which he can like just fucking pull you into a situation it's incredible stuff it's yeah. so good this is it i mean you know what was it 57 something like that 57 yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 57 and it it is as powerful today like and in a weird way relevant today um you know, on so many levels, but you cannot watch this film and not be affected by it at least once, probably several times. When I was, I'm going to say like 21, I guess, I had a job in the industry and I I got like quite badly fucked over by a contract. Like I I applied for this job. It was a a permanent full-time position. I, I got the job I uh, I turned up to work. I did my first like couple of weeks. We were going to be paid monthly. Uh, and I got my contract through to sign and my hourly rate was lower than it had been advertised. Right. 
and I protested about this, uh, and they they go, oh well, you know, things have changed a little bit, whatever. And I'm like, but you need to bring that up before someone starts to work for you. You can't do that after they've done ten days of work. Yeah. Uh, and then I ended up, uh, and I, I never signed a contract because they they kept on bringing me new contracts, and they kept on being like insane. And then like three months in, I got a, a job offer to go and work uh, running a small mold shop, like a sub mold shop. At Henson's, like a, just a, like a little corner, and it was paying way more money, uh, and I'd not I'd not signed a contract. But I'd, and they were like, "Can you start tomorrow?" And I said, "Well, no, I'm in the middle of a job. I'd I'd like to finish up what I'm doing. I don't want to mm. leave these guys in the lurch, whatever." Like I felt like I'd done my diligence. Like I'd done a, I'd, I'd been sensible about it. I'd been yeah. nice about it. But I went to the boss, and I said to him, "Look, I know I've not signed a contract, so I could technically just walk out the door and not come back. But I've been offered a job at Henson's." Uh, not Henson's, to Swords. Sorry, I misspoke. Uh, I've been offered a job at Tussauds. Uh, I, I, I'm going to take it, but I, I'm not going to accept it until a week on Monday because I want to finish out this job that I'm on. I don't want to leave you in the lurch. Mm. And he just said, ah, you've made me look like a right cunt. And when I sent in my last invoice, I got back a letter, which I still have to this day, mm. which basically said, you'll never work in this town again. Whoa, holy shit. And I, like, up until that moment, I, I thought that that was, that was like a joke, like a pantomime phrase. Like, yeah. that wasn't a thing that people said. Exactly, he, yeah, yeah. He genuinely said, we have enough clout that we can stop you working. Wow. Uh, and I immediately thought, oh, right, just because I love my work doesn't mean that I have to love everybody in my industry. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is a massive prick. That is that's a good, very early lesson to learn, and and I hope yeah. that I hope that guy enjoyed Lord Chaos. I hope he enjoyed Color Out of Space. I hope he enjoys Possessor um, with its flesh trench. You know, um, <laughs> I don't I don't think he does enjoy any of those things, Sam. Because I think he only <laughs> enjoys sadness. <laughs> I don't. Really he only hope enjoys, he enjoys the those. suffering of others. <laughs> uh, I hope they make him miserable. Um, yeah, I mean that's it. Um, you know, we, we have talked a lot about the film industry in this, and rightly so, but, you know, Sweet Smell of Success is ultimately about journalism and, um, you know, yes, show business, but as we said before, on a lot of different levels. Yeah, I guess it's very unique in that respect. There's probably, you can count the great journalism movies on one hand, maybe. Um, yeah. And and I, I don't know if any of them are as dark as this. I think probably, actually, the closest thing in terms of its kind of tone and focus is probably Ace in the Hole. Oh, such a great film. Which is another amazing film. Uh, it's about journalism. Again, it's got that pitch black noir tone. It's the first movie that Billy Wilder wrote, directed and produced. So not his first movie, but the first with that combination. Um, and so, Triple Threat. So, so it, exactly. So it has an unbelievable script and performances. Uh, like Sweet Smell, it was a critical and commercial failure at the time. But it hasn't just grown in reputation. It's increased in relevance, I'd say, Ace in the Hole, just like Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and both films feel like early warnings against the potential dangers of the press. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just... it's The reason I kind of make that connection and comparison is because it is such a unique film, um, Sweet Smell of Success. I can't really think of many like it. Can you? Are there any? No, I mean, I, yeah, I, I like you, have struggled <laughs> to find 
uh, recommendations. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I have accidentally gone into recommendations, though. Even though Ace in the Hole isn't one of my recommendations, no, and it isn't is, isn't one of mine. Uh, and when you mentioned it, I both kicked myself for not having thought of it, and was very pleased that you hadn't just spoiled one of my recommendations. <laughs> um, before we move on to recommendations, actually, I don't think we've talked enough about Bert Lancaster. Uh, in this film um, very handsome but he's the top of his head's very small yeah yeah and <laughs> i mean maybe, maybe that's a perspective thing because he's so tall could be <laughs> could be um I, and it gives him kind of a almost neanderthal look um even though he's very kind of intelligent he's, and it's, articulate. it's interesting because uh the the two leads in this are very both incredibly handsome yes but in very different ways yes absolutely <laughs> very very like, different ways it's part curtis, of what makes it work yeah yeah don't you think curtis looks like the sort of he looks like the guy that would have played a young Ray Liotta in a movie of Ray Liotta's life <laughs> should such a thing have been made in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe that's a, a remnant of memory is what made Scorsese cast Liotta in Goodfellas because of his uh, and love of Liotta Tony Liotta was a handsome young man as well. Like, he was, yeah, yeah very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're, very, they're very similar looking. But... Um, and and because of that handsomeness, or partly because of that handsomeness, like I said before, they'd both been wholesome leading men. This was the first yeah. time that either of them had played a villain, and they're obviously both villains in this. And But Lancaster especially has such an intense presence. He muscles everyone off the screen, except, you know, let's allow for Tony Curtis, but... He dominates every scene he's in. Well, so. He plays every fucking scene like a coiled spring. Yeah, exactly. He's, God, he's, yes. he's got such an oppressive physicality, and yet he never uses it. Like, there's a moment towards the end where he, he kind of snaps a little and there's a bit of physical violence. But even then, like, he's not punching through walls like you'd, like you'd feel he could. Like, yeah. he's built like Wreck-It Ralph. But he... <laughs> <laughs> But his all of his movement is so subdued. Yes. And he's he, he sits there like yes. a fucking claymore landmine. Like just yes. Yes. staring at these fuckers, willing them to trigger him. <laughs> Jesus, man. That is one of again, let's hope this gets pulled out for the social media because that's one of the best descriptions i've heard of uh of that character and, and this performance yeah and and it's really interesting like obviously he produced the movie and and uh, originally orson wells was considered for for the role um of, of the jj and then curtis was selected to play opposite him partly because of their chemistry in trapeze which was released the year before yeah what's interesting is Lancaster actually has top billing in this film, even though it's clearly Curtis's film. Um, yeah, but that's because he's the producer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe he had a bit of that merciless edge himself. But, yeah, I honestly don't know how many Arrowheads will be massive but Lancaster fans. Um, you don't really hear his name a lot in discussions of the greatest actors of all time. Um, I mean, you do amongst cineasts, but... Film Twitter, I don't really see his name pop up too much. So, and I'm not saying that Arrowheads aren't cineasts, of course they are, but I'm just saying that the modern audience, uh, the younger audience, let's say, um, I don't know he's how he's somewhat they overlooked. Are. Yeah, he's overlooked. So, you know, we've 
both talked about films like The Swimmer and The Leopard on the podcast before, and obviously yeah. both are masterpieces, but movies like Brute Force, I Walk Alone, Alma Gantry, Judgment oh, on yeah. Nuremberg, which is fucking astonishing, that film. Um, high recommendation. Uh, the Train, Criss Cross, which just had an excellent Eureka yeah. Blu-ray release. And so many more worth your time. Um, Dan, are there any titles you'd like to throw in there? Yeah, I think you've run the gamut. Yeah, I mean, just search him out. Watch his... He's one of these wonderful actors where he, not only was he great, he had fucking amazing taste. So, you know... He had he, great taste, but he had great understanding of his own physicality. Because yes. he started off as an acrobat, as a physical performer. Yeah. Like, he's a big fucking guy, and you'd... Ex, you Like, you know, you could totally see a situation in which he'd fall into just being, like, the Hulk. But actually, and 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 Sweet Spot of Success is a, a great example of this. He he understood like the center of that mass, and yeah. and that everything he did had to radiate from that center. So in Sweet Spot of Success, he rarely leaves that middle point. But in other films, he's able to be incredibly graceful. Yeah, he mo- he moves in in a very fluid way, and so while he's not like. You're not going to get your like amazing monologues from him. That's not his thing. But he's got so much like seated understanding of who the character is that, and he knew his like he knew the extent of his ability as well. So he never, he, I don't think he overreached. He was able to like choose a role, a good role for him in a great film, and deliver absolutely what that film needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. To the extent that I'm struggling to think of who a modern day comparison would be. You know, Clint Eastwood to a certain extent, though there's some crossover there. But in terms of like the current generation of actors, I'm not really sure who who could match Yeah, it's him. very hard. Um, but yeah, shall, shall we move on to recommendations, seeing as I've Let's just listed it. about, you know, 15 films. <laughs> um, you, you go first. What have you got? My first one uh, is another film that has both Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster in it, albeit in like super secret cameos, uh, is The List of Adrian Messenger from 1963. Um, this is directed by John Huston, who actually worked alongside Alexandra McKendrick in the psychological warfare branch. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a, a, like a fucking crazy whodunit. It's a lot lighter than Sweet Smell of Success, although it still has a lot of the noir like holdovers. Uh, it's black and white, despite being in 1963, when you know black and white was falling slightly out of favour. It's based on a story by Philip McDonald, who wrote Rebecca for Hitchcock. So mm. uh, you can see that. But what I would say is it's it's absolutely chock-a-block with lookalike makeups and disguise makeups uh, um, to my... You know, uh, my fellow effects artists out there, this is an early Bud Westmore picture. So this is before multi-piece prosthetic makeups uh, a la Dick Smith kind of came into into standard. Um, Bud Westmore did these beautiful full-face foam latex pieces. And what they've done is uh, they've got a, a character, like a murderer, essentially, being hunted by George C. Scott, who is wearing uh, lookalike makeups and the they populated the movie with like a a a list characters mm. um and then they put them all in 
disguise makeup. So what it meant was that you you constantly saw people who were in like disguise makeup. So mm. it was very hard to tell who who was being who it was under the makeup. Uh, but a lot of these characters were essentially like normal people. The fact that they were in disguise makeup was not part of the film. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really it's a it's a fucking bonkers it's got uh, Frank Sinatra in it. <laughs> I have yeah. actually seen this film. You've just like dislodged a memory of of exactly that because the, the the makeups are quite. If it's the film I'm thinking of, they are quite pronounced, and they're there to yeah exactly yeah. I, I I have seen this film a, a while back, but um, yeah no, it it is surreal and weird. If it's the same one that I'm thinking, yeah, of. it's 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 a, it's a who done it. George C. Scott gets given a list of names, asked, is asked to investigate them. It turns out all of them have been murdered. The friend who asks him to investigate the list is also murdered. He gets are there involved. horses in it? Yeah, there are horses in it. Yeah, I have <laughs> seen this film. There's, then. Yeah, there's okay. a fantastic gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my and god. Then, yeah. And then one of my favorite moments in the film is like after the credit, like during the credits, they show you all of the like AAA celebs who yes, were in it, yes. like take, pulling off their makeup, yes. which for me as a, as a prosthetics artist, like hurts my soul <laughs> because you're not meant to just pull off prosthetic. <laughs> but also they've just glued them around the edges. Like they're just glued yeah. around the eyes, glued around the hairline, whatever. But there's, yeah, oh my God. It's a, it's a great film anyway. And then it's got this extra layer of this really delightful, like special effects romp as well. I'm going to have to watch it again. I've got such a distant memory of it, but yeah, you've just sort of unleashed a repressed so, memory yeah. there. List of Adrian Messenger from 1963, John yeah. Houston. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Now, uh, I kind of, I thought lots of different ways about how to approach recommendations this fortnight, and I've decided to go for, you know, I thought about recommending a couple of Scorsese movies because obviously there's such a clear connection and, you know, various other bits and pieces. But I've decided to go for kind of a unique angle, which is to recommend stuff based on characters within the film. So uh, the cop in the film, um, Harry Kello, he's actually based on a real NYPD detective named Eddie Egan, who uh, listeners might already be aware was the inspiration for Gene Hackman's Popeye Doyle in The French Connection. So you don't need me to tell you about The French Connection unless you do, in which case just go watch it. (laughs) And yeah, I think it's kind of a weirdly great double bill. You can imagine those characters kind of roaming the same streets or or that character, I should say, roaming the same streets. Um, Yeah, The French Connection from 1971. Uh, I recommend it. Dan, what's next from you? Well, so my next recommendation is so... I felt it was so obvious that I had to have a backup. So if it wasn't your next recommendation, Mm. I I want to say my backup anyway, uh, because my backup is one we've actually mentioned on the podcast before. But my next recommendation... I've gone a weird way with mine, so I don't think it will be. So yeah. But my next recommendation is Citizen Kane. Oh, wow. (laughs) I love it. Amazing. Literally like widely hailed as the best film of all time yes and and i know like the reason i mention it's so it is, right is, it's so right is, yeah is because we had this conversation about terminator last time yeah yeah uh and there are these amazing classics that people like 
you know, just have haven't like checked out. They feel like they know enough about them because of context and gifts. I, I honestly that they, think that they don't need to watch them. I honestly think that Citizen Kane is probably the greatest example of this because it's the ultimate cliche. It's not yeah, like know, it's people literally say it's the Citizen Kane of dot 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 exactly. Like it has become a descriptor. Yeah, and yet when I was twelve, my school used to do film showings. And I went and watched Citizen Kane and about like five to ten minutes in, Hmm. five minutes in, I thought, well, this is just weird news footage all spliced together. This is bullshit. (laughs) And I I walked out of Citizen Kane. I love that story. (laughs) And for a long time, I wouldn't not watch a film to the end, no matter how bad it got. (laughs) Because like... I'd walked out of Citizen Kane. I couldn't be trusted. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I had to see a film to the end in case I was walking out on another Citizen Kane. Yeah, there's the 10-minute rule, and there's the 10-minute rule. Um, Yeah, jeez. So, I wrote myself some notes about Citizen Kane. What I wrote was, like the sweet smell of success, it's based on the machinations of a real-world media villain. And while people may ignore it these days as impenetrable or slow, if you disregarded it, as I did in youth, revisit it now, for it is fully deserving of its masterpiece status. Yeah, wonderful. And may I recommend that people also watch The Eyes of Orson Welles. I've probably recommended that before, but amazing, amazing documentary and will compliment Citizen Kane perfectly. Um, I love that. That's wonderful. Any more on Citizen Kane? No, but I'm just going to throw in... Uh, my additional uh, recommendation. All right. Which well, I, which... I'll, I'll go. I'll do my next, and then no, you do yours do... first. Do yours yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. in case. Who knows? Um, it's not going to be the same one. So, as Dan mentioned right at the top of the episode, this is based on a real gossip columnist named Walter Winchell. Hans Secker was based on on this reportedly awful chap, but Winchell actually performed the voiceover for the Untouchables TV series. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to recommend Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, um, (laughs) which isn't as tenuous as you might think. You know, it is inspired by the same kind of noir movies that inspired Sweet Smell of Success. And you can actually really imagine Burt Lancaster playing the Kevin Costner part in The Untouchables. Just in case you don't know, set during the Prohibition in America, it follows uh, a special incorruptible federal team tasked with taking down Al Capone. And it is absolutely brilliant, incredible direction, transcendent score, and some really entertaining performances is how I'll put that. The Untouchables, I recommend it. Dan, was your next one? the untouchables it was it wasn't it wasn't i i wanted to be able to recommend paul mazursky's winchell from 1998 which was an hbo movie about the life of winchell wow uh, starring stanley tucci as holy, walter winchell holy fuck um but i have not been able to find a copy of it oh wow yeah <laughs> and so I'm, i cannot in good faith recommend a <laughs> an impossible to track down movie that i cannot get hold of it i mean if you can't get it then it's truly lost so i've 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 put the feelers out in my my world but if any listener out there has a copy of that and wants to share it with me uh i would be very interested in seeing it but the 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 backup second feature which i've actually already uh, recommended is a film that uh, mckendrick himself greenlit 
um, because in the closing years, days of the Second World War, like his work in the white propaganda area of the psychological warfare branch set him in Italy, uh, as Sam, you will know from the extra features, mm-hmm. and he uh, and he ended up being the guy to red stamp, green stamp the movies that were being made in Italy at the time. And for the most part, that was a red stamp. Like, stop, just don't make films. Uh, but the first film he was allowed to green light was Rome Open City, which yes, 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 which I've 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 mentioned on a previous podcast. It is a it is part of a, a beautiful trilogy out on the BFI Blu-ray at the moment. But yeah, the idea that like him and Houston and Rome Open City were all sort of like tied together with this uh, astonishing like propaganda division of the the UK American Alliance. Um, yeah, just just tickled me. I really like that. Yeah, so no. that was my that was my backup. I love it. And and just before we move on to recommendations from the past couple of weeks, uh, just to touch on those extras again because you've just kind of reminded me. Um, there's a scene select commentary which lasts just over thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, but you know, normally I don't like these kind of abbreviated commentaries. But honestly, there is more insight and information in in that thirty minutes than in some feature length commentaries. Um, it's by Philip Kemp and I want to give a shout out to Philip Kemp because I'm always happy when he appears on a disc he's up there with Kim Newman for me in terms of his knowledge Um, and Kemp also pops up in a 20 minute introduction to McKendrick how he got involved with Sweet Smell of Success and how the movie was made and it is fantastic literally everything you need to know about the movie is there it is an amazing piece of essay writing and delivery so um, well done, Philip Kemp. We love you. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that, really. Recommendations from the past couple of weeks, Dan. What have you got? Um, so Sam and I have been uh, lucky enough to have some privy access to some of the stuff that's going to be playing at Frightfest Digital in August. And I hope I'm not treading on your toes, Sam, if I, uh, if I recommend 12-hour shift. It's all right. It is one of mine, but um, this was inevitable. And so what we'll do is we'll both talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Bria, Brea, Grant. I um, think it's Bree, but who knows? Bree, who you may know uh, as an actor, but uh, has directed this film, 12-Hour Shift. Uh, I'll be completely honest, it took about 10 minutes to draw me in. Mostly because it drips with '90s indie film like aesthetic, yeah. Uh, until and and it wasn't until I realised that that was deliberate <laughs> yeah. that I was on board. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a it's a great like one night in the life of movie, which is a like a subgenre like structure genre that I'm a big fan of, and it's about a uh, appropriately for this podcast morally defunct. A uh, nurse who works in an American hospital and who uh, ushers soon to leave this mortal coil patients on their way in order to be able to harvest their organs for a uh, for a for an organ harvesting ring, and then things go spectacularly south when someone mislays a bag of guts. Um, yes i don't want to spoil the i don't want to go into the narrative more than that no but it's um it's yeah it, it it's lovely it's sort of like it's a cross between like 
Imagine if Shortcuts was a sliding door farce set in a hospital with a like a toe in the horror genre, and that's this movie. Do you know what? That's really weird because what I've got down here, um, and we should really underline that it's a comedy because you know it, it, it's a, a pitch black comedy. Pitch black comedy. <laughs> you know, it's about a junkie nurse who's selling organs to to feed her addiction, but um, and it's it's very violent, but it is definitely a comedy the tone is unique and what i've got it's interesting that you say shortcuts because i've got if a student paul thomas anson directed an episode of it's always sunny uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is obviously very high praise not much is as good as that but i i just really enjoyed it it's a really strong debut from i actually do not know how to say your name brie or bria grant i'm very sorry about that um you are a, a fantastic director and uh a wonderful actress. People listening to this may recognise her from Arrow videos after midnight. Um, but yeah, I have just compared your film to Paul Thomas Anderson. So you know, please don't hate me too much Hopefully for not that knowing how to points. pronounce your <laughs> name. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of two recommendations from uh, the Arrow Video Fright Fest in August. So shall I go next? Yeah, uh, yeah, go yeah. next, man. Okay, so I've got... I don't know if Dan had a chance to watch this one because we haven't discussed it, but um, Clapboard Jungle. Did you get to Clapboard Jungle, Dan? No, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it. So um, this is a documentary featuring one of the nicest dudes in indie film, um, Justin McConnell, who I know from the circuit, and we were looking forward to meeting up in Cannes this year, but... He was one of the earliest people I saw who said, Cannes not happening this year because of COVID. And this was right at the start of the COVID thing, like way before um, it, it started to, to really kind of um, seep into the public consciousness. But, you know, he, he was very sure that it wouldn't happen. And it's kind of interesting that he was aware in that way because this is a documentary about the modern independent film industry and... Obviously, that's a a shifting landscape, to say the least, especially now because of COVID. Um, There is a brief uh, mention of COVID in the doc, but it's really, you know, the information in it is is before that changed everything. Um, But I do think that this documentary will still remain relevant, even in the, the changing landscape. And yeah, it, it features lots of talking heads, including some people who have appeared on this podcast, people like Jen Wexler and Heather Buckley. And there have been similar film industry documentaries, but the industry has changed so much. It's really essential for anyone wanting to get into it today. There are a lot of lessons in this film that I've actually learned the hard way. And I wish I'd have seen it before I started out. Um, you know, Travis is in there, Dan. Um, nice. You know, there, there's all sorts of people that um, are recognisable from the horror film community, and there's just so much great advice in it. Yeah. So, Clapboard Jungle. If you have any interest in getting into the the horror film industry, or even just learning about what it takes to make some of your favourite films, and you know, Life Changer, which is a film. Dan and I have recommended on this podcast um, is covered yeah, yeah. in the documentary. So, um, yeah, Clapboard Jungle. It's part of the Arrow Video strand or screen at the Arrow Video Fright Fest, which, as I'm sure you're aware by now, is online this year. 
Um, and and yeah, there's there's a, a, a few highlights in the selection. Is there anything that, that caught your eye in the sort of wider, um, in, in terms of the stuff that we haven't seen yet, Dan? Um, I'm not going to answer that question because I haven't delved deep enough yet <laughs> to uh, to make any choices. That's totally fair enough. Um, the one that I'll mention is Hail to the Deadites, which is a documentary about oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. evil dead fans, which apparently doesn't feature any footage from the franchise. Um, a lot of it looks like it was collected on the convention circuit. Haven't seen it yet, um, but I love Evil Dead and I love Evil Dead fans. And just when you think that you can't watch another documentary about the Evil Dead if you've owned all the various releases um, of that film over the years, along comes one with a very fresh and unique angle. So... Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to Hail to the Deadites, which is also in the Arrow video strand. But, um, you know, I think we've got one more episode before the festival. So I'm sure we'll have watched more films by then and oh, yeah. we can make other recommendations. Um, and of course, we will be appearing in a strange new form on on the yeah. online festival. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit Exciting about that? Exciting new technology. Yes. Yeah. So the I'm, I mean, I, to be, I'm not going to profess to be an expert as to how this is all going to work, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we're Sam and I are uh, returning for our third live podcast. In this instance, we will both be uh, in our homes, so I have to work out what posters I guess I want <laughs> behind me for that. And uh, yeah. We, uh, I, I guess the the downside of not being able to be in Leicester Square is hopefully going to be tempered by the ability to have guests from all over the world join us. Yes, depending on whether or not they're night time owls. For time frames. Yeah, <laughs> whether or not it's the middle of the fucking night. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think um, we're going to be on at midday on the Monday I think that's when our slot is don't hold me to that and it will have been announced by the time this episode goes out so do check the so yeah, three, in, three in the morning at LA time yeah so you know so um, we're either going to get some very tired Americans or you know people who are in Europe but cool we'll work Europeans. it out we'll work it out we'll, we'll get cool people um, you know the past couple have been um, yeah, I'm really proud of the, the other two live. Oh, yeah, episodes, we've we've so. we've we've set a high standard. We have exactly. to sort so, this shit out. You know, who knows how much of a shambles it'll be <laughs> um, <laughs> online? But you know, we're going to do our best. <laughs> I'm really selling this, aren't I? I'm really hyping it. <laughs> um, Dan, what is your final recommendation from the past couple of weeks? Well, so this is one uh, Jen and I were like sort of just like scrolling through prime a little while ago like in the last couple of weeks uh looking for something to watch and i got my phone out and i looked through my imdb list uh and i was just looking at like the highest rated films that i hadn't watched yet that were on my imdb list Mm. and and this film came up and i was like i don't remember where i recommended this um i think it was probably recommended by mark blackman who's who was on the who came on and chatted with me on the um long good friday uh, episode um or the mona lisa episode either or but but yeah so I, I i knew nothing about it but it was on my list it was from 2018 it's very highly rated 
uh, and I, I couldn't work out what the fuck it was or why I had it on my list. Uh, and it was like a couple of quid on, on Amazon. So we were like, yeah, let's give this a go. It's really well rated. So we put it on and it absolutely blew me away. And then so for the next week, I was recommending it to everybody. And, I, and like loads of people I mentioned it to were like, well, yeah, that was amazing. We all knew about that. What the fuck are you talking about? So I uh, hopefully I'm, I'm bringing at least a, a medium level cut. <laughs> <laughs> It's possible. I'm just being, you know, I, I mean, fuck, I've already recommended this as a game. Like, how much more, <laughs> how much more, like, well-known can I go? Um, but, yeah, so now I'm wa- recommending Carlos Lopez Estrada's 2018 film Blind Spotting. Have you seen this, Sam? I haven't actually seen it, but I am aware of it. So, oh um, my goodness. is this one that I should prioritise? This is yes, on my list as well. Yes, it absolutely is one you should prioritise. So... Uh, David Diggs, who I know from Clipping, who are sort of like an experimental hip-hop group mm. and who recently did a fucking amazing horror concept album that you might be familiar with. The first uh, first track released from that had a beautiful like Halloween opening credits reference mm-hmm. uh, video that was just a slow push-in on a burning trash can with a face cut in it. And Raphael Casal, um, who wrote it over like 10 years but have known each other. They've worked together for like almost almost twenty years. They did a thing called the Bad uh, the Bay Boy mixtape, uh, like way back. Uh, they're like kind of slam poets, like early hip hop stuff. But this is ostensibly uh, a movie about a young uh, black man who gets out of prison after a short sentence, like a few months. Uh, for an uh, at the beginning of the film, an undisclosed uh, transgression, who goes into a year of probation, and then the film kind of jumps forwards to the last like few days of his probationary period. He's just trying to keep his nose clean and doesn't want to get in trouble with the cops, uh, and he witnesses uh, the extrajudicial killing of a young black man at the hands of a white police officer in the streets, like a, an unarmed young black man is shot to death mm. by a white police officer in the streets and then it's also a comedy <laughs> so yes. so those are the things you need to know it's uh it has uh sort of like hip hop slash slam poetry elements to it and they come to a four in the third act but it is not just that um david dig some of you might know from his part in hamilton which i have not watched but I am not interested in. Um, <laughs> I've heard the soundtrack cast recording. I do not want that in my life. But uh, he is a fantastic performer. He co-wrote this. It is beautifully realized. It has tension in it like you wish for in genre cinema. There's a scene in it that that brought me back to a previous recommendation, uh, System Crasher. Oh, yeah. There's There's a moment in it that has a similar tension to System Crasher in it, which just, oh my God, it just fucking pulls your spine through your front. Um, wow. It's, yeah, it's it's great. It, it, I think the thing that it does so well is that it balances like light comedy, kind of like, like without being, God, I, I really fucking hope this doesn't sound diminutive, but like white accessible comedy. It, it Like it's got sort of like Friday elements to uh-huh. it. But then it like it 
like with a laser sharp focus, it throws itself onto like the black experience in America, which has obviously become so much more pertinent in recent months uh, with the rise of Black Lives Matter, like unearthing so much stuff uh, that maybe us both white and outside of America have been comfortable not knowing about. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just such, yeah, it's just fucking great. And, and, and on top of that, it never moves into a place where it feels aggressively preachy, which right. I know turns off a lot of people who feel yeah, blah, 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 blah. Fuck those guys. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it's a fucking great film. It's beautifully directed. The comedy is great. The tension is great. It's just a very good film. Watch, watch Bloodspotting. Wow. Yeah. Well, th- yeah, definitely. I will move that up. Um, yeah, my kind of... I, I did a one ninety nine rental Amazon thing this week, um, which isn't quite as uh, uh, existential or illuminating. Uh, I watched Bad Boys for Life as my... Oh. <laughs> And maybe I should have watched um, Blind Spotting instead. But I did enjoy Bad Boys for Life. I love Bad Boys. I love Bad Boys too. Bad Boys for Life isn't as good, but it is as good as you could possibly expect from, you know, a film almost 20 years, a third installment in a franchise almost 20 years after, um, you know, the, the most recent entry. It is weird. It has one of the weirdest twists I've ever seen in a film. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm not actually, this isn't one of my recommendations. It's just because that's just said the thing we're talking about <laughs> an Amazon rental. Um, yeah. but yeah, shall we, uh, let's move into Yeah. What's your next, what's your recommendation? That's it. Like, cause we kind of shared actually, yeah, maybe I'll just have bad boys for life because we kind of shared 12 hour shift, didn't we? So yeah. Then yeah, I you can have bad boys for life. Tell me, yeah. tell me. Okay. So I really like bad boys when it yes. came out. I haven't watched it for years. Um, I liked Bad Boys 2 because of the special effects used in the dummy tech, like when yeah. they ran over bodies. I thought they were very good, but I didn't think a lot of the film. I, and when ca- I, when I, weirdly, I, re- love, I weirdly love Bad Boys 2. I'm so sorry. but When yeah. I rewatched Bad Boys 2, I liked it a lot less, but I was fascinated by how many times it faked an ending. <laughs> Like, it kept on finishing, and then they were like, oh, but there's more. It felt like the infomercial of blowing people up. (laughs) Well, Bad Boys for Life is... um, Now, I'm actually trying to cast my mind back to uh, any potential offensive elements of Bad Boys 2, because I must admit, you know, I've seen it a couple of times. Once was with you, and I think that was why I've got such a fond memory of it, um, because I had a very enjoyable time watching it with you. But I think delirious that might, foolishness, at it least, might be because we were making fun of it and and being a little bit drunken. But um, Bad Boys for Life um, is it's not directed by Michael Bay for a start. Um, so even though it has nods to the Bayisms, um, and there is one <laughs> uh, magnificent cameo, um, yeah, it, it's not very Michael Bay at all. Um, and it's actually kind of quite a moving, well, you know, that's a strong word, but it did touch me to a certain extent in terms of, you know, ageing relationships and friendships and, you know... Um, yeah, it's got kind of a sweet element to it um, and some fun set pieces, absolutely insane set pieces, not on the Michael Bay level, but 
kind of more Fast and the Furious, I guess, but but not quite to the budget level of that. But yeah, it, it's just got a truly, truly, truly insane twist that no one will see coming. There's just no chance <laughs> you'll see this coming. What um, you're saying is it has a it has a latter day giallo level twist. Yes, actually, that's a great comparison for what I'm talking about. It is it's very giallo. This this element. It's just fucking bonkers. <laughs> um, so hopefully, you know, if it's still one ninety nine uh, when this episode goes out, then it is worth a rental. Um, but you know, and it's the first. Uh, it's, it's the first in the franchise that's directed by a, a not white person as yep, well. By the look yep, of it, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and obviously, you know, Will and Martin are both, you know, great. They're charismatic and entertaining. Um, you know, even though. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything more than that. Well, um, you know, you've 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 successfully bombed it on my list a few notches. The fact that you didn't go, what are you talking about when I mentioned Giallo? <laughs> no, in fact, I went. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's correct. That's it. That's it. Oh, so uh, um, oh, ding ding yeah, ding. Just brace yourself for it. Um, but yeah, all right. Let's go into extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Now, Dan, I believe you have an extra feature to hand. Is that correct? Good Christ, do I? In that case, let me have it to hand. Precious. Are you talking about the competition, or was there yes, a different thing? Yes, yes, that's okay, it. Okay, all right. Oh, right, I hadn't, I hadn't realised that, that was falling to me specifically, and I felt like I had maybe like promised that I'd talk to someone. Yeah, you, you <laughs> did say you'd get... As well as you know, you said that you'd um, do a seance to summon Tony Curtis, but if that's not happening, then uh, that's a joke. Please, maybe we should cut that. That could be offensive. No, no, keep that in. No, okay, I think, fine. you know, the, the okay. ghost of Tony Curtis... Um, that's fine. So, he's a handsome. He's a handsome ghost. I'd have him around anytime. He, oh man, what a what an actor. Anyway, Dan, what what is the the competition? If, if you want me to take it, I, I also no, don't mind. But um, I'm yeah. super super happy to talk about it. Um, yeah, like so. Uh, for those of you who haven't noticed, uh, Arrow uh, have launched a uh, lockdown short film competition. It's now on. Sam and I are not allowed to enter, so it's obviously garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Because we are involved. Also, my wife is not allowed to enter uh, because she is married to me, which she is uh, angry about. I mean, she's always angry about that, but (laughs) she's more angry now. Yeah, it's uh, like, you know, we're all in lockdown. It's all bullshit. Uh, A lot of our creative avenues have been closed off to us. So Arrow have have thought that they could potentially get involved with rewarding people who take advantage of the situation, I guess. Like <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a fair description <laughs> of the situation of it? <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, uh, it's on the Arrow website. Uh, it's on Arrow Twitter. Basically, uh, Arrow have created a short film competition. It's for five minutes and less, uh, like, you know, five minutes and shorter films. Uh, It has to have been both conceived and made during lockdown. Uh, You can't just, like, fucking, like, bring out a short film you made when you were a student back in 97 and just put the word lockdown in the title. (laughs) If it's not in English, it has to have English subtitles, but there is no actual, like, distinction to the language of submission. Yeah, I I think that's kind of it, isn't it? Yeah, like, don't don't kill anyone. I guess. 
don't kill anyone, don't harm yourself, wear a mask if you're going out. Um, but, you know, I think probably the point of this is to make films within your own home. That's probably the yes. safest bet or within your garden. So, yeah, one thing that I should mention is that it's actually being judged by Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, a.k.a. Benson and Moorhead, a.k.a. the directors of The Endless, um, which is obviously a, a, a wonderful Arrow video release. Um, more recently... Yes, indeed. Synchronic. And, yes, yeah, Spring. You know them from Spring, maybe. Resolution, which was Resolution. On, on the Endless Disc. is a magnificent film. So they will be judging your short. Even though Dan and I can't enter, uh, I'm sure we'll be watching um, your films uh, when they come through. Uh, because we're nosy like that and we like films. So, um, yeah, right. Uh, I think that's it, isn't it? Uh, that sounds like everything. Dan, how can the Arrowheads follow you on social media? Uh, I'm at 13FingerFX on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, that's at 13, the numbers, finger, F-I-N-G-E-R, and then FX, that's Foxtrot X-Ray, if you fancy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's a, a combination of pictures of my work, uh, low-key political rants, and photographs of my dogs. So enjoy those things. And they are all beautiful things. I am at Sam Ashurst on Twitter, and I am at Sam Ashurst 23 on Instagram. Not really doing a lot of social media stuff at the moment, it does have to be said. So, you know, brace yourself for disappointment if you do follow me on either of those things. Um, but really... All we want you to do is to subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. Um, oh, we haven't we haven't asked people to review it for a very long time, have we? No, and actually that we're we're pretty bad at that, which is reflected in our position in the charts. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I should oh. say begging letters review us. Um, because that really helps other people find us. So Yeah, would you mind leaving us a lovely five-star review if you enjoy the podcast? <laughs> yes, yes, please do. Uh, and because yeah. we've fallen very much behind, Sam and I have both been on multiple other podcasts that c- consistently rate higher than this one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that's obviously bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, please, please do subscribe and, and give us a review and... Uh, yeah, but if you want to just keep us to yourself, then I kind of understand that too. We can just be an underground podcast, though that may lead to us getting oh, fired imagine, at some point like the in old, the future. The VHS you had from the <laughs> Watford Film Fair in 1992, and yeah. you're like, well, I can't let anyone know about this, because then everyone, every fuck is going to know about it. But if I keep it a secret, then I can just like uh, just drop drop hints about it, like everyone should know, but yes. they don't. Yes, because the the thing to remember about that thing to remember about that VHS is that director never went on to make another movie, and we do hope to get to at least five hundred episodes of this podcast. So, yes, whatever you can do to support us, I'm going to stop talking about it now. Thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional, more professional next time. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.